Muslim Chat presents Heroes of Islam, a 30-part series on the lives of some of the greatest Muslims to walk this earth. Today, this this person has been given permission to go ahead with giving a small talk on Salahuddin Al-Ayyubi, who, as we all know, is a very, very important Muslim figure. And I hope that I will be able to do him some amount of justice because as it stands this this is a person that if you want to talk about and you don't want to be a hypocrite when you are doing it you, you have to be a, a pretty good muslim in in my opinion so so who who was salahuddin al-ayyubi he was a general a commander of the muslims who managed to liberate managed to unite the Muslims. That that in my opinion is his more is his bigger achievement compared to liberating Jerusalem after eighty eight years of Crusader rule. But uh managing to unite the Muslims is something that is far more important than conquering some lands because when you when you unite the Muslims and you and you uh, uh teach them the guidelines of jihad and the importance of jihad, then inshallah Allah, Allah himself will open up all these lands for you. It kind of becomes just just war after that. Just just some struggle. But if you have that mindset of like what that struggle is about, what the struggle is for, then a lot of things will become easy inshallah. So Saladin Yusuf Al Ayyubi was born as a son to Najmuddin Ayyubi 532 years after the Hijri, Hijra of the Prophet or 1137 in our in our years that we use today in the citadel of Tikrit uh, near Baghdad. This citadel was built by the Persian kings in ancient times, but it was conquered during the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab on the day Salahuddin was born, the governor of Baghdad ordered Najm din Ayyub and Najm's brother Asad al-Din Sharku to leave Tikrit. This was because Sharku had killed one of the commanders of the citadel. This commander had molested a woman and Sharku avenged her honor by killing this man. But the governor feared for Najm and Sharku because the commanders might harm Najam and Shirk out of revenge. So the governor ordered them to leave and they left for Mosul, where they were welcomed very warmly by uh, Imad al-Din Zangi, um, the progeny of the Zangi dynasty, not the progeny, or the starter of the Zangi dynasty, let's say. And they stayed, and they stayed with them. And Imad had done this as a reward 
because Najam at Shirku had protected him when Imad was fighting against the Seljuks and Imad had lost that battle. So he was fleeing away and Najamuddin and Shirku or Najamuddin had provided him with some protection so that he could get to his uh, to his place safely, Mosul. And so Imad welcomed Najamuddin and Shirku and under him the Ayyubid family flourished and Najamuddin and Shirku became some of the best commanders. Then after Imaduddin was killed, Nuruddin came to power with the help of the Ayyubids. And at this time it was actually split into, uh, I don't remember where, uh, what principality Nuruddin was given command of, but uh, Nuruddin's brother was given command of Mosul. But either way, Nuruddin then went on and uh, conquered Damascus. And that's what he retained majority control over. Uh, Salahuddin was raised in Damascus, learning Islam, horsemanship, hunting, archery, and other skills. Nuruddin may have seen potential in Salahuddin as a young man. And before serving under Nuruddin, Salahuddin gained some experience serving under his father and then under his uncle Asaduddin Shirku when Shirku marched on Egypt. And Egypt was conquered and freed of the influences of the Shi'i Fatimid, who had ruled over it for a while. Ibn al-Farad says, amongst other things, Salahuddin was influenced by the Sultan Nuruddin Mahmud, who gave him a brilliant example of sincere devotion and a serious sense of religious responsibility. He learned from him sincerity and self-sacrifice and how to converse with his Lord in private prayer in his own place of worship, taking from that the spiritual strength to engage in jihad. Sultan Nuruddin passed away in 569 uh, Hijri, leaving his 11-year-old son Al-Malik Saleh as the next potential candidate. The emirs who served Nuruddin in Damascus appointed Ibn al-Muqaddim as the guardian of this child. Then a commander of Aleppo, which is a town quite close to Damascus, they're, they're both in Syria. Uh, then a commander of Aleppo conspired with Ibn al-Muqaddim and managed to bring the Sultan al-Malik or Saleh to Aleppo. They also arrested Ibn al-Daya, who Saladin respected. And it was partially because of this arrest of uh, Ibn Adaya that Salahuddin understood that these emirs of uh, Aleppo could could not be trusted. They were they were being power hungry. But uh, as it happens, Ibn Al Muqaddim, who was in power in Damascus, was being harassed by Aleppo and some other rulers in the area. So he wrote to Salahuddin to intervene. So Salahuddin wrote him a letter denouncing what the people were doing, to which Ibn al-Muqaddim wrote back, saying, Let it not be said of you that you harbored ambitions against the house that planted you, raised you, and established you, and helped you become king of Egypt. It does not befit you because of your good character, because of the close friends you have, and because of your kindness. Basically, Ibn al-Muqaddim is saying to Salahuddin, like, you know, if, if you're going to rise up against us, the Zangis, people just say like, you're a traitor, you're a turncoat, you just, you just bit the hand that feeds you. But once the situation in Egypt calmed down, 
Salahuddin marched to Syria and Ibn, Ibn, Ibn al-Muqaddim warmly uh, met them. He welcomed them. And then Salahuddin gave money to the people of Damascus, abolished taxes and levies. And this was partially to gain the hearts of people. And the people willingly submitted to Salahuddin's rule. And Salahuddin basically captured Damascus. After that, Salahuddin marched on Gamushtigin, if I'm pronouncing his name right. I, I couldn't find any information on this guy, but um, I'm assuming he's Turkish. Who had taken con- command of Aleppo and was ruling on behalf of the powerless Malik Saleh because Malik Saleh is a kid. So the, the Emirs are basically ruling on his behalf, in quotes. <clears throat> Salahuddin besieged Aleppo and Gamushtigin influenced Malik Saleh to ally with the Shias against Salahuddin. The Ismaili Shia sent some assassins disguised as regular soldiers and managed to enter Salahuddin's tent, but they were unable to kill Salahuddin. Then once, when, when he saw that this failed, Gamushd again tried to ally with the Crusaders. And the Crusaders had a little back and forth with Salahuddin's forces, forcing Salahuddin to move away from besieging Aleppo for a while. I don't actually know what happened to Gamushd again after this. There wasn't enough information in the book I was reading, and I couldn't find any information on this particular Gamushd again online. After this, Salahuddin had some... He moved, he focused his attention to Mosul now, and Mosul was ruled by Saifuddin, who was one of the Zangi. Uh, and Saifuddin died, and his successor, Izzuddin, appointed Imaduddin as a governor of Aleppo. Salahuddin besieged Aleppo, and Imaduddin, who was already an unpopular leader, just gave him control of Aleppo and returned for some other territories like Sinjar and its surrounding ones. After taking control of Aleppo, Salahuddin besieged Mosul twice. And on, on its second attempt, Izzuddin sought a peace deal with them. And at the culmination of this peace deal, the Muslims were finally united to the extent where Salahuddin was now able to retake Jerusalem. Uniting the Muslims took 12 long years, but Salahuddin al remained persistent. He didn't think much of money and would give, money, give away money to emirs and people to win over their hearts. He was tolerant and dealt nicely with prisoners. On top of that, he was a very devout Muslim. And these are, these are some of the reasons why he was able to unite the Muslims in, in the manner that he did. Seeing the increasing power of Salahuddin, the Crusaders sought to make, make a peace treaty with him. Then he had a small skirmish with Baldwin IV and the troops of uh, Renald Renald de Chatillon, who is, Renald is a very terrible person, but we will get to him soon enough. So after, after defeating the Crusaders in a, in, a, in a small battle, Baldwin IV, the ruler of Jerusalem, requested for peace with Salahuddin, and a treaty was signed for two years between them. But this Renald de Chatillon, Chatillon which I mentioned earlier, who had been the worst of the crusader generals, broke the treaty, and he raided a Muslim caravan heading towards Mecca for Hajj. And on the part of Reynold, this is quite a stupid move to do because he was generating revenue from caravans passing through Jerusalem that were headed to Mecca anyway. 
So if he if he wanted that wealth, he could have just sat there and like collected treaty on it, but he didn't do that. Instead, he just raided one of them and devoured all of its wealth. And Salahuddin got angry and he sent word about it to Balwin. And Balwin criticized Renald and commanded Renald to return the plundered wealth. But Renald mocked his own master and refused him. In the past, Renald had actually started a campaign with the intention of destroying Mecca and Medina. And the way they did that was by marching into Ethiopia and constructing ships there. And those ships would go on and plunder Muslim ships in the area who did not expect any crusaders over there at all. But uh, when Salahuddin heard of that happening, uh, the IUBs constructed uh, constructed ships of their own, and they went and uh, they went and dealt with those crusaders. And contrary to how Saladin regularly acts with prisoners, including like both Muslim and non-Muslim prisoners, he he usually treats them with a lot of mercy, comparatively. But uh, when the crusaders attacked Mecca and Medina, those those crusaders were executed as they deserve for spilling Muslim blood and spilling Muslim blood that belonged to basically civilians of the time. Either way, following Renault's treachery, Salahuddin, which, which following Renault's treachery, which broke the treaty that was between Salahuddin and Baldwin, Salahuddin marched um, towards Jerusalem and this culminate, culminated in the historic Battle of Hatin between Salahuddin at the head of a united Muslim army and the Crusaders, some of some of whom were divided and they were already fighting amongst themselves. They were summarily defeated in battle. And Salahuddin summoned the Crusader kings and the then king of Palestine, because Balwin IV had died and King Guy de Lusugnan had uh, succeeded him. And King Guy was treated well and he was given a vessel of iced water to drink. After drinking this water, uh, King Guy passed the vessel to Renald, and Renald started drinking it. But Salahuddin got angry at seeing this, and he told the king that he had not given his permission to Renald to drink the water. And because this is a custom back then that if, or rather this may have been a custom of Salahuddin, I'm not sure about this that if Salahuddin was hospitable to, hospitable to anyone, that person would enjoy his protection. Salahuddin had not given his protection to Renald. Salahuddin then reminded Renald of his crimes and his treachery. And then he still, as the last chance with mercy, offered him to accept Islam. But Renald didn't accept Islam, so Salahuddin executed him then and there and then on the spot. Seeing this, King Guy became afraid and he thought he was going to die but Salahuddin said uh, that kings do not kill kings or something to that accord I'm sorry um, either way Salahuddin reassured him that uh, he would have his life secure following this um, no before that well after defeating the majority of the crusaders at Hatin. Salahuddin marched on Jerusalem, besieged it, and then liberated it. This was after 88 years of crusader rule. Unlike the crusaders, however, and this is well known and accepted by both orientalists and Christians, 
the ones that are sincere at least. Uh, Salahuddin did not shed any Christian blood. He did not destroy any churches. He allowed the Christians to stay in Jerusalem. 88 years ago when the Crusaders had taken Jerusalem, they had engaged in so much bloodshed that they were bathed in the blood of the, of the ones they had killed. Following this liberation of Jerusalem, which made the Crusaders very worried and sent word back to their masters in Europe, uh, there were the events of the Third Crusades where kings from Germany, France, and England themselves, or rather Britain, I would say, I should say. Was it was it England back then? Probably Britain. Uh, these three nations, and along with probably some other smaller nations as well, they banded together a very large force against the Muslims and they marched against Jerusalem. But in the end, the results of that crusade were quite irrelevant in the grand scheme of things because the military campaign that they started went way over budget and the gains they got from it were quite paltry in comparison. Capturing just one one big important town, but nothing else apart from that. They couldn't take Jerusalem at all. Okay, so that is that is the extent, like, that's the the more important bits of Salahuddin's campaign. So let's let's talk about Salahuddin's personal characteristics. I'm not going to mention which school of Aqidah he belonged to because I don't want to start a discussion on that. But what is important to know is that he was a Kufan, and it there there are some authors apparently there are some people apparently that tried to make his lineage go back to the Arabs. And as as part of some Arab supremacist thinking, but Islam, Alhamdulillah, is beyond borders. It's beyond ethnicities. It's beyond all that all that stuff. So whether or not Salahuddin was a Kufan or an Arab is kind of irrelevant. But it is important for us to remember that there were there was a diversity of Muslims that um, contributed towards this religion. My my favorite example is to quote. Is to, is to point out that um, Bukhari was from Central Asia, basically. And we all know how critical Bukhari was to the Islamic cause. Salahuddin was unpolluted by anthropomorphism and prevented the arrow of speculation from overshooting the mark and inclining towards denial or misinterpretation of divine attributes. Of course, I mean, we, we might have some Aqidah differences. Some of us might have some Aqidah differences. But what is important to know is that he rejected philosophers and their kind of thinking. And during his time, there were some astrologers that said that the world would end in a particular year. Or that if Salahuddin marched on Jerusalem, he would become blind. But he didn't care about them. They, that That is irrelevant in Islam. When talking about prayer, Salahuddin was always regular in his attendance in prayers and congregation. He persistently offered Sunnah prayers and would offer voluntary, which um, the word used in the English text I'm reading is voluntary. I'm going to interpret that as nafil prayers. So if he woke up at any time during the night, or if he didn't wake up at night, he would pray nafil uh, before Fajr. If he woke up at night, he would pray um, nafil then. And even during his final sickness, he prays to standing up. 
if he was traveling and it was time for prayer, he would dismount and pray. About Zakat, it is not said whether he was ever able to amass enough wealth to pay to have to pay a Zakat on it. But what is definitely known is that when he died, he didn't have enough wealth to, for it to be subject to Zakat, leaving 47 dirhams and a single Tyrian gold piece of that time, which which we, we may not we may not know how much that was, but uh, it doesn't sound a lot. Voluntary charity consumed most of his wealth. He acquired a great deal of wealth, but he would give it away to win over emirs or just give them away to poor people. Old, uh, he, he liked giving money away to old people and orphans. And on one occasion, he compared money to dirt, dirt saying that there is no real difference between them. On fasting, he missed fasting in Ramadan due to his sickness, but uh, he had his trusted companion, Al-Qadi Al-Fadil, record the days he missed. Al-Qadi Al-Fadil is uh, quite an important figure, but I haven't um, detailed about him at all in this lecture. And this is someone you might want to check out on your own. Um, so these missed fasts, he started making up them in the year he died. Fasting more than a one continue, more than more than one month cons- continuously. The doctors criticized him on this, but he continued to fast by the grace of Allah. He could never perform the Hajj. Sadly, he had made up his mind to do it in the year he died, but he delayed it to the next year because of financial and time-related constraints. And in, in terms of Islamic sciences, there is quite a lot to say, but I will pick out a few important things. He memorized the Quran, or maybe it was a part of it. Um, I'm actually not sure since the wording used in the book is non-specific. So he memorized maybe a part of it or the entire Quran. He would seek out scholars of Hadith and summon them to listen to them. And if a particular scholar was of the kind that uh, didn't visit the doors of rulers, Salahuddin would go to them instead. Justice, courage, and humbleness are the other qualities of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. Apart from that, what he's most well known for in both amongst both the Muslims and even the Orientalists and the West is that Salahuddin was very, very generous. During the Third Crusade, when his enemy Richard the Lionhearted got sick. He sent him <clears throat> some fruits and ice water and also his own physician to treat him. <clears throat> Salahuddin, when he liberated Jerusalem, as we discussed, as as I have said, um did not um did not punish the Christians. He instead liberate like allowed them to leave with uh, the with some ransom and if they couldn't pay ransom he also allowed them to leave uh, anyway but um to talk about um this sort of generosity a bit this is something that you should not that that muslims should not like take as an example of something we could do all the time because if you are being oppressed and you're being generous with your oppressors that is not being generous that is that is being oppressed in itself. Being generous when you have the upper hand is true generosity. 
So Salahuddin's generosity was something that was achieved after he had taken Jerusalem, after he had defeated his enemies. This is not something that we should foolishly grant to our enemies before we have overpowered them. That is stupidity. That is just giving them more power over us. Amongst amongst the more merciful things that Salahuddin did as an example was that a Frankish woman had approached his army and she broke through its lines and uh, came up to him. And he asked what had happened to this woman. And apparently her baby had been kidnapped away from her. And so Salahuddin sent some of his forces into the market to look for this baby. And after some time, one of the men came back with the baby on his, sho- on a, on his shoulders. And the woman, on seeing her baby return, she, she, she became very, a lot more emotional. And she started banging her head on the ground and praying and in her foreign tongue. Very, very thankful for, this, for what Salahuddin had done. Apparently, from what I understand, in, volume, in, in one narration in this book, they don't mention when this had happened. But um, in another narration, they mentioned that this happened after Jerusalem was liberated. However, there's a bit of a difference in the narration where in one place it was the daughter of the woman and another place it was the son of the woman. Allah wa'alam. Finally, the last thing that I found uh, quite biting in this book is uh, the words of some of the Europeans when they had conquered Jerusalem again during the world wars, which kind of goes to highlight that these, this crusader mentality hasn't really gone away. It has just become something else. Now, now we're treated with uh, foreign influences such as liberalism and its principles. But is that really that much different from Christianity, if you think about it? When the British crusader general entered Jerusalem in victory after the First World War and was received with great honor by the allies of the British, he could not conceal his crusader resentment against Islam and the Muslims. He said in the 1900s, many, many years after the last of the crusades had ended, he said, now the crusades are over. SubhanAllah. There was another general uh, whose name I found out, but... uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to look it up again. I, I forgot his name and he's very irrelevant in my opinion. But this French general went to the tomb of Salahuddin Ayyubi in Damascus. He kicked the gravestone and he said, now we have come back, Salahuddin. Actually, you know what? I'm going to look up the entire code because it's, it's quite important. It, it just, the, the, bite, the bite of the full code is not, is not, is not then what's represented in this book. All right, this French general's name was Henry Gourad. I don't even know how French names are pronounced. And so he reportedly went to the tomb of Saladin, kicked it and said, Awake Saladin, we have returned. My presence here consecrates the victory of the cross over the crescent. This thinking never entered amongst them. And then later on, they would form Israel on the conquered lands of Palestine. And that Israel has been, in a way, a thorn in the side of the Muslims ever since. And uh, that is it for this lecture. Uh, Whatever I said, uh, correct is from Allah. And uh, whatever I was wrong in is from my own errors. It's from my own mistakes. It's from my own weakness. May Allah bless the Muslims. And may Allah unite us again like we were united during the day of Salah al-Din. Allah yubi. Barakallah
This was produced by the Muslim Chat Discord server, the best online forum run on the principles of the Quran and Sunnah. Find out more and join now at www.muslim.chat.